Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers in writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual summer writers conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Thank you, Gertrude and Ola listeners. Welcome to Episode 42 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Today, as promised, we present another recorded live reading this one is an extra long one, featuring stories of previous podcast guest and West Virginia writer's current parliamentarian, Belinda Anderson. She, as you may well know, is the author of such short story collections as The Well Ain't Dry Yet, The Bingo Cheaters, and her latest Buckle Up Buttercup. This was recorded on September 21st, when Belinda was invited by Carnegie Hall, West Virginia, in Lewisburg to open up their fall season of Brown Bag Tuesday readings. Now, in these, the public's invited, once a month, on a Tuesday, to come on by Carnegie Hall, bring their lunch, and listen to live readings, often by local authors and literary types. This, of course, means that during today's reading, you might notice the sounds of food being munched coming from the audience, who were seated perilously close to our recording devices. I turn things now over to Carnegie Hall's artistic director, Lynn Kramer, to introduce the reading. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to... 2010 Fall uh, Brown Bag Tuesdays. We're very delighted to have you all here. And we open today with um, Belinda Anderson and some guests who will be reading from her three different um, books that she has published. We have coming up in the series um, in October, on October 19th, the poetry of Tim Armantrout. Um, on November 16th, we'll have the short stories of Eric Fritzius, whom I assume most of you know. And on December 21st, it will be the Carnegie Children's Choir will be performing their holiday show. Uh, I also want to let you know it's a busy week at Carnegie Hall. We have our Brown Bag Tuesday today. On Friday night, we have um, the local group Bad Neighbors, which is a benefit for the hall. Um, They'll be performing at 7.30. On Saturday afternoon at 2 o'clock, we have a puppet show, Tears of Joy puppet show. Um, and they'll be doing a Japanese uh, version of Tom Thumb called Little One Inch. Um, and after the puppet show, there'll be a, a tea ceremony that everybody's invited to partake in. And then um, next Monday evening, I gave you all a flyer. We'll be rescreening a film that we showed in um, part of last spring's Carnegie film series, Dombe, The Molly Project. And we showed this film in conjunction with the Habib Koite performance. This film is um, a wonderful, beautiful film. We had a lot of requests to, to rescreen it. Um, and it's the story of two Irish musicians traveling through the country of Mali on their way to the festival of music. Um, and they, they stop throughout the country and perform with different Malian musicians. And it's just a real fascinating visual feast for the eyes. Um, so uh, we hope that you can take part in some of that. 
And now please welcome Belinda Anderson and her guests. Well, I see we have uh, an exclusive group here today, so thank you all for coming. I'd like to thank Carnegie Hall for hosting this series that celebrates the literary arts. I'd also like to thank Elizabeth Spangler, Larry Davis, for agreeing to help give voice to the characters that are so dear to me. So today we're offering a medley, a selection from each of my three books. As some of you already know, each book is a collection of short stories that stand on their own. But what's fun is that characters from one book often pop up in others. So some of the characters you'll meet in this first piece show up in the second book. Another character takes a prominent role in the last story. I wanted to begin with the very first story from the very first book, and it's a short piece. Some of you may have heard it before, but you've never heard it with a full cast. <laughs> so let's get started. Arise. Lazarus? Hi, glad to see you both. Twilight Dawn. I was made from starlight, my grandmother told me. She took me to raise after my mama died. My grandmother was born a slave on a piddling tobacco farm in Virginia, but she was the proudest woman I ever knew. She told me I was somebody. You got divine light in you, child, she would say taking hold of my chin and staring straight into my eyes for so long that I felt the universe start to swell inside me. I still hold the universe, even though my joints crack and my hair looks like bleached steel wool. My name is Twilight Dawn Johnson. I'm an old, old woman, but I got a pile of work to do before I can go. There's a lot more folks need my quilts before I can lay down my needle and thimble. It don't seem like my sight is as good as it used to be, and I know my mind wanders like a cow in the woods, but somehow my stitches turn out just as small and even as ever. My hands seem to move now without my guidance, the silver needle winking in and out of the cloth, stitching one little ridge after another. If I thought my eyes were bad before, this quilt will blind me. Some fella brought over enough bolts of fabric to make a rainbow. I'm talking scalding, red, yellow, orange, blue, and green. It's for a special friend of ours, a young woman who hasn't had it very easy. Mother asked me to see if you could make a starburst pattern. I examined his kindly face, and I knew he'd adopt every orphan in the world if he could. I also knew right away I'd make a star everlasting quilt. Orphaned is just what one blonde-haired woman was feeling when she stood in my living room clutching her daddy's beach shirts. She said she wanted me to piece a quilt from those clothes, but I could tell she wanted to run when she spotted the scissors lying beside my cardboard diamond pattern. They say you do good work, she said, ready to cry. I took the shirts from her. Honey, I'm going to make you a happy memory quilt. You just leave all that with me. I already knew I'd make her a trip around the world, even though cutting and sewing all those little bitty squares is hard on my eyes. People seem happy with what I give them. Well, I had one complaint about price from Wanda. Right now I can't recall her last name. All I said was, that's what it's worth to me to do the work. If you want to find somebody else, that's fine. I quit arguing with people a long time ago. 
I've never seen an argument yet that changed anybody's mind. Well, I'm already here, she said, and handed me a Walmart bag filled with small triangles her grandmother had cut from feed sacks, but never got around to quilting. Wanda wanted me to make a quilt for her cousin Dottie. If I was you, I might be tempted to keep this for myself, I told her. There's history here. Uh, Dottie never had much growing up. Besides, have I held on to these old scraps too long? Then I knew her for a woman who was generous, despite her words of vinegar. I sewed those triangles into diamonds and made a lemon star quilt. And so they keep coming to me, from Lewisburg, Bluefield, Princeton, even out of state. I don't go anywhere. I've lived on this border all my life. It's always made me a little uneasy, roosting for West Virginia Parts Company with Virginia. I am 100% West Virginian and proud of it. But there's a lot of West Virginia I don't know anything about. Never been to a coal camp. Never even toured the exhibition coal mine in Beckley. I hear there are glass factories all over the state, but I couldn't tell you a thing about them. My piece of West Virginia looks more the way my grandmother described the Shenandoah Valley of the Old Dominion. Monroe County is an earthen quilt of green farmland patches stitched in place by chains of mountains. My trailer roosts in a valley so I can quilt in my living room and look out the window at those beautiful hunks of blue and green. My grandmother taught me the secret of the Underground Railroad when she taught me to quilt. Slaves couldn't read, but they could creep up to a yard and see a cotton quilt hanging on a clothesline. Certain quilts spelled freedom. Birds in the air, that was safe. And tail of Benjamin's kite. The evening star pattern gave directions. I never had children, never married, never been away from these hills. Got my heart broke once and decided to keep the pieces to myself. I learned a lot about life anyway. People bring their stories to me, telling me more with their bits of fabric than they ever could with words. A girl gently unfolds a tattered old gown, running her fingers over the rough lace before she hands it to me. A widower brings me a dozen silk scarves as bright and fine as the woman who wore them. Jimmy, Edward Thurman, Jr. Sounds like I've got company. By the time I get to the screen door, two moon-faced rascals, one with red hair and one with yellow, have beheaded half a dozen of my tulips. Quit it, y'all, hollers a good-sized woman unloading herself from a minivan. They pay her no mind whatsoever until she says, I reckon you don't want to go to the Cracker Barrel after all. The boys leave the flowers and start chasing each other around the yard. I'm sorry, hi, I'm Margaret. For such a big voice, it holds a lot of doubt. Are you the quilter? That's me, honey. Come on in. I hold the screen door open for her. Oh, no, I don't have time. She's carrying a plastic bag. She starts to give it to me, then stops. Could you make a quilt from the boy's baby clothes? She wants something to hold and remember the sweet, clean smell of her newborns. When the boys are at school and her husband's at work, she'll wrap herself in that quilt and think back to the time when sticky, chubby little hands used to wind around her neck. The woman whips her head at a big cracking noise, the sound of wood screaming, Jimmy, Junior, and then I see them. Those boys have ruined my grape trellis trying to play Tarzan. They're standing there, looking mighty disappointed at the vine lying torn and shredded on the ground, the vine my grandmother brought from Virginia. That's it, you can forget about the Cracker Barrel. 
The boys start howling. You promised! You said we could order breakfast for supper! He wipes his nose with the back of his hand. I said we'd stop if you behaved yourselves. Margaret turns to me. I'm really sorry. Can I pay you for that? How could she ever replace the one living, breathing tie to the woman who showed me my soul? I feel my blood heating and percolating through my thready old veins. Well, there's a surprise. I thought I was done with anger. Anger don't do a thing but eat at the spirit, unless you can do some good with it, like Dr. King. You must think I'm a terrible mother. Those eyes are the palest blue, but I can't see any light in them. I'll make your quilt, I say, reaching for the bag. I'm going to piece grandmother's flower garden. I'll cut those powdery pale baby clothes into real delicate looking blossoms. She needs something soft and pretty. We've caused you enough trouble, she says. Honey, let go of the bag. And all of a sudden she does. She starts like a deer that just heard the first blast of hunting season, grabs hold of her children and drives off. I walk over to the trellis, but I'm too stiff to bend down and pick up the vine. I wish I could hold it just one more time before it withers. Letting go is the hardest thing. I was just 17 when I found my grandmother slumped over a log cabin quilt she had just finished. When I lifted her cheek from the cloth, I looked more closely at the pattern. Instead of using red patches in the centers of the squares, she had sewn the dark blue signal of freedom. I didn't see how I could live without her. They found me rocking her in my arms, petting her hair, singing her favorite hymns. It took me a long, long time to learn that holding on hurts worse than letting go. I look at that old vine again. It will return to the earth. The earth is part of the universe that lives inside me and my grandmother's spirit rides the Milky Way. I go back in the house and settle down at the quilt frame again. I need to finish this star everlasting. Got a lot of work to get done before my century is completed. People need these quilts. With every pull on the thread, I try to stitch them a little hope. Thank you. <laughs> meet a little bit later on, but uh, Jimmy and Eddie are going to take a much more prominent role in this next story that we're about to read. It's called Foul the Guesser from the Bingo Cheaters. Yes, sir. Okay. Wait up, Margaret said to her family. There's a prize here with my name on it. Oh, Mom, not this old game. Eddie, she had to remember not to call him Junior anymore, held out his hand. Just give us our money and let us buy our ride tickets. Margaret ignored Eddie's hand and Jimmy's bobbing blonde head, which vigorously nodded in agreement with his brother's plan. You can wait a minute. It's our money. We're the ones that mowed yards all summer. I believe your mother suggested you could wait a minute. Ed said in that mild but low tone that always silenced the boys. Tell you what, let's step across the way and get a cinnamon bun or an elephant ear and then we'll all walk over to the rides together. Margaret now stood alone before a small stand on the fairgrounds. The booth wasn't much, just a lean-to festooned with stuffed animals, furred and garish purples, greens and yellows. Beside the booth lounged a young man 
considerably smaller than his companion, a huge Toledo scale emblazoned with red lettering, Foul the Guesser. Guess you ain't, offered the game attendant. Margaret was accustomed to carnies wearing a weather-beaten look, men with faces caved in from years of sucking cigarettes. This pink-cheeked kid, wearing a lime green knit shirt and a tennis visor, could barely be a high school junior. Not hardly, said Margaret, aware that she carried more than her share of poundage. You've earth month? No, I want you to guess my age. The game rules posted over the booth said she could have any choice of a prize if the guest missed by more than two years. The kid's sunburned skin turned brighter. Don't you want me to guess your birth month? I'm terrible at guessing birth months. I want you to guess my age, Margaret repeated. She possessed an extensive collection of plush animals gathered over years of playing this game. Now that her sons had outgrown the desire to use the critters for surgical experiments, she was free to trumpet her loot all over the house, on shelves and in chairs, reminders of the girlish free spirit that lay beneath the exterior of the responsible woman who drove her children to soccer practice and made sure her husband had his prostate checked once a year. She supposed it was her round face and round eyes that made her look so young. Don't make me guess your age. The last lady cussed me out. I'd have thought most women would get more upset about their weight. I don't know about that. Haven't had a female let me guess her weight yet. Margaret thrust two dollar bills at him. Guess my age. The kid sighed and got out his notepad and pen. I don't care if they do fire me. I'm going to come in on low on this one. Margaret smiled at him, tucking her blonde hair behind her ears. She was nudging 40, but she could predict he'd shave her down to her early 30s. The kid showed her the figure he'd written on the pad, extending his arm rather than stepping closer to her. I win, Margaret said, but she wasn't smiling anymore. How near did I get? You were off by 10 years. Ed had returned with the boys, his big ears catching the last bit of conversation. Ten years? Isn't that a reckon, record bumpkin pie? He surveyed the menagerie. Oh, how about this white cat? Sort of looks like Fluffy. I don't see anything I care to have. Let's go. You're a lucky winner. You have to pick a prize. He selected a floppy-eared dog wearing an insolent grin. How about this purple pup? Fine, I'll take the purple pup. Margaret walked away, her lips pressed in a firm, hard line. At the ticket booth for the ride, she grimly counted out a portion of the boys' summer earnings. She didn't even try to talk them out of riding the Tasmanian Devil. Tell me what you want me to win for you at the dime toss. Ed said as the attendants strapped the Reiner heirs into their gravity-defying cage seats. Set of juice tumblers or glasses? You go on. I want to see the quilts in the West Virginia building. I'll meet you and the boys there in half an hour. She did not go to the West Virginia building. Instead, Margaret threaded her way through the sweaty crowd to the women's restroom beneath the grandstand. Staring into the mirror, she saw the evidence of deterioration, the shadows under her eyes, the sag along her chin. When had this happened? Margaret left the restroom and headed outside, stopping at a concession stand to buy a plastic bottle of water before mounting the concrete steps to the grandstand. She was determined to climb her way to the very top where she could quietly nurse her sorrow. Indignation drove every huffing breath as she labored up the risers. Ten years, she repeated the mantra up the two dozen steps to the top row. A few people had drifted into the grandstand, early arrivals for the harness racing. Margaret flopped down on one of the old green wooden benches, bolted to the concrete riser. 
She slammed the purple pup beside her to protect her personal space, then turned it around so it couldn't stare at her. Ten years. Maybe it was her weight. She glared with resentment at her water bottle, knowing that her string bean of a husband no doubt had paused to fortify himself with a bag of popcorn and fresh-squeezed lemonade. Excuse me, do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions about the harness racing? Margaret looked up to see a young woman, tailored totally out of proportion to her setting. She was pretty, maybe in her late twenties, with auburn hair. Margaret blinked at the visage before her, most remarkable for its absences. No crow's feet, no shadows under her eyes, no tiny wrinkles circling the cherry-colored lips. What? Then she saw the young man with the tripod in the television news camera. We just wanted to talk to some folks about the harness racing. I'm not watching the racing. And yet, here you sit, the young fellow said with a cocky grin. You're not a fugitive from justice, are you? Cut it out. We've got to get some footage and then get down to the track before the governor makes his speech. She moved along the bench, finding a more receptive response from a couple of old farmers. Oh, yeah. We come here every year, said the one with the John Deere cap. Is it just the racing that brings you to the fair? Well, I always like to get me one of these. The old fellow waved a sugar disc of dough. Tear you off a piece. Daintily, the reporter did so. What is this? That's an elephant ear. Margaret noticed that the reporter had not dropped one greasy crumb on her black blouse or turquoise jacket, which should have been impossibly hot on a day like this. Margaret touched a hand to her neck and found it slick with perspiration. Perimenopause. That would explain those ten years, she thought. She thought of her mother, now on the other side of the childbearing boundary, dried up like a salted garden slug. <laughs> Something like a hiss directed at her drew Margaret's attention to a woman standing nearby. How rude! Why don't you just take the bus to Baghdad? <laughs> Margaret then perceived everyone standing and the national anthem playing on the speakers. She jumped to her feet, and the purple pup went tumbling all 24 steps to stop right beside a little girl maybe two or three years old. She squealed and picked it up, hugging it close, not even looking around to question the source of this unexpected bounty. Kitty! Good riddance. Margaret never wanted to see another stuffed animal. When she got home, she'd throw those prizes in a trash bag and take them to Goodwill. She stood before the hateful woman's hot glare with her hand on her heart, but she couldn't sing. She had no pride left in her voice. They treat us like babies. Eddie said as he waited for the ride to start. Here he was, a seventh grader, going to a new school, and his mother acted as though he couldn't even count. Uh -huh. Eddie looked over at Jimmy, whose eyes had gone very round, and found an outlet for his frustration. You ain't scared, are you? Not hardly. He craned his neck to examine the wheels and belts that drove the machine. What does this ride do exactly? It goes end over end, and when we get to the top in reversal, we'll be standing on our heads. Eddie saw the satisfaction that his younger brother's freckles had nearly disappeared as his face whitened. If you don't think you can handle it, you can get off now. Jimmy gripped the handlebars of his metal cage. I can handle it. I mean, you being two years younger, I could understand you being scared. You could probably trade your tickets for the carousel. 
Jimmy started to reply to the insult when the speakers began spewing heavy metal music and the Tasmanian devil staggered into motion. Eddie grinned at Jimmy's panicked face, but the smile faded as the devil rocketed their car and his gut, forward and upward. Maybe he shouldn't have eaten that elephant ear. Maybe he ought to get off now. Too late, too late. Without warning, the ride sent him tumbling headfirst, and Eddie suddenly knew the restraint would give way, sending him sliding to his death. That's why they played such loud music, to cover the sounds of the screams of accident victims. <laughs> he died before he got his driver's license. He was going to die, and Jimmy would be the one driving Dad's Corvette. <laughs> the world righted itself, but Eddie's confused stomach lurched. Eddie took in a big breath and looked over at his brother, expecting to forget his own troubles and Jimmy's terror. But Jimmy, too ignorant to know when he ought to fear for his life, beamed like he'd just scored the winning goal. Eddie's cage suddenly spun upside down again, and he concentrated on keeping his mouth closed and making bargains. If he didn't die, he quit picking on Jimmy. He'd clean out Fluffy's litter box without being asked, or at least after being asked the first time. <laughs> Definitely by the second time. And then the devil returned to earth, releasing its victims. Eddie staggered, bumping into a woman wearing a blue jacket. That looks like some rye, she said, jabbing a microphone in front of his face. Is this your favorite? Jimmy reached out and grabbed the microphone like a talent show contestant. It was great! Am I going to be on TV? Am I going to be an, I'm going to be an astronaut? He chatted like a spastic squirrel. Am I on TV right now or later? The reporter recovered her microphone. How about you? She asked Eddie. He opened his mouth, but instead of delivering a clever comment, he deposited his elephant's ear on the reporter's shiny black shoes. <laughs> Over at Desdemona's dying pitch, Ed stood cracking his knuckles, ignoring the other pitchers clustered around the open-air counter that ringed the game. He felt good. He felt loose. He felt like a winner because he was a winner. Even with the economy sucking on sour balls, he sold NASCAR memorabilia faster than a pit crew could change a racing slick. Ed eyed the display of glassware, stacked on top of each other on four slowly rotating turntables. The quality had diminished considerably over the years. He saw no evidence of the anchor-hawking tumblers that he, had, he and Margaret still used every day or the candlesticks that decorate the mantel of the fireplace in the living room. Now, branded pieces and leftover conference giveaways polluted the display. He frowned at the telemarketing in the 21st century mug. Then his expression lightened. An overturned punch bowl beckoned him. All he had to do was to throw a dime into a little pink toothpick holder perched on the top. He waved a dollar at the pink-shirted attendant, a wizened old woman with her thin white hair stretched over her scalp in a ponytail. And she spread ten dimes on the counter before him. No leaning. She warned him. Ed was a man of honor. He would not dream of leaning. He picked up a dime, gave it a toss. The coin skipped across the surface of the toothpick holder and kept traveling. No problem. That was to be expected, just a practice throw to gauge the target. He hefted the next dime. It clanged against the side of the toothpick holder and fell to the sawdust below. The next dime sang and danced around the rim before dropping dead to the ground. Before he knew it, all the dimes disappeared. 
The old woman appeared at his side. You're just getting warmed up. She said, counting out ten more dimes before he barely had time to pull out another dollar bill from his pocket. One by one, those dimes vanished too. It had never taken him so this long to score before. Maybe it was the slant of the sun or creating misleading shadows and reflection. Third time's a charm. The old woman shucked another set of dimes onto the counter and stuffed his dollar into her money changer's apron. The coins fled from his fingers, flying off to seek sanctuary between the turntables or nestle in the sawdust. Rick, it was too crowded for a man to get his throwing arm positioned just right. The woman beside him had parked her stroller with her sleeping baby between them. The young fellow on the other side stepped closer to Ed, determined to win a beer stein. That show-off wore a muscle shirt and jeans so tight they looked ready to split. The old woman appeared before Ed, dimes at the ready. Luck's bound to change at this time. Ed nodded and gave her another dollar. Ten dollars later, Ed was a confirmed loser. He couldn't even claim an ashtray. Beside him, the young Atlas had amassed a serviceable cash, two beer steins, six juice glasses, and four plastic tumblers. Looks like Lady Lux with you today, Ed said, falling into his salesman habit of friendly conversation. Young man shrugged. I'm just planning to be doing something. He tossed another dime, which sailed right into the pink toothpick holder, and then stared in dismay at the box the old woman set before him. What am I supposed to do with that? Ed seized the opportunity. Tell you what, I reckon my wife could use a bowl. What do you take for it? Ed was prepared to go as high as ten bucks. You say it's for your wife? The young man shoved the box at him. Tell her happy anniversary from Steve. Well, corn dog might make him feel better. better. Uh, but when he collected Margaret, she looked at the box and said, Lucky as usual. Let's get the boys and go. Aren't we stopping for a corn dog? I'm not hungry. But I always get a corn dog. Well, then let's get a corn dog. God forbid anything in our life should ever change. After they claimed two of the vinyl top stools surrounding uh, Piggy's pavilion, Ed asked, What's eating you? You ought to be in a good mood. What with that kid thinking you're barely 30? He slathered mustard on his corn dog. <coughs> that wasn't his guess. But you said 10 years. Oh, I'm sorry, sugar pie. Well, at least you're still in fighting form. Yeah, well, maybe not so much as I used to be. Are you kidding? I bet that was the biggest prize they had. Ed finished chewing a piece of corn dog and then said, um, Juicy Fruit, I got a confession to make. I'm not the man you think I am. What do you mean? I mean, some kid gave me that bowl because I can't hit the side of a barn door anymore. He shoved the box at her. Happy anniversary from Steve. He would never darken the dime toss counter again. Needless say, uh, unless somebody walked up to him and gave him a roll of dimes. Not that such a thing was likely, but if Ed had learned anything in his years around NASCAR, it was smart to never say never. Jimmy could not believe his mom and dad wanted to go home. Well, it was the best day of summer, maybe his whole life. We can't go home, he said. We haven't seen the Lumberjack show. 
Tell you what, we'll check out the lumberjacks and then grab a couple of more elephant ears on the way out. Well, Jimmy considered telling about Eddie throwing up, but decided such valuable ammunition to save such valuable ammunition for when he really needed it. The Reiners hurried through the agricultural exhibit area, Jimmy rubbernecking at the antique John Deere and Fords slowly rumbling to the grandstand for the tractor pull. They arrived at the lumberjack show just in time for the log rolling competition. That's 600 pounds of cedar, folks, said the announcer. A man in a cowboy hat pointing to a log floating in a portable water pool. Two men stood side by side on the log, swaying a little as they sought to balance themselves. At the announcer's signal, they began to spin the log, water splashing their jean legs. Their hands flailed the air as the log rolled faster and faster until one of them fell. Those guys are something. Jimmy, still feeling the triumph over the Tasmanian devil, declared, I could hang on longer than that. The announcer, who had ears as big as Jimmy's dad, said, We got another contender, folks. What's your name, son? Uh, Jimmy said, his newfound courage failing at the knowing grins of the soaking lumberjacks. Neither he nor Eddie could swim. He tried to back away, but the announcer had a hand clapped on his shoulder. His name is Bilbert. And who are you, young fella? Garfield! All right, folks. Dilbert and Garfield here are going to show the professionals how it's done. Step right up, boys. The announcer said, prodding Eddie and then Jimmy up the planking of the pool. The boys inched their way onto the log with the help of the two lumberjacks who stood in the pool holding the cedar steady. Mean a go, pecker ahead. Genius move. Even with the log held in place, Jimmy already felt dizzy. If he slipped, the water would claim him. If he died, so would Fluffy. He'd forgotten to fill her water, her food bowl before they left the house. And his parents might not remember to feed her after they got home from taking him to that funeral place or he'd end up in a box like Papa. Jimmy started crying. Huh, oh, quit like a baby. You're embarrassing yourself. That sounded like Mom. Jimmy didn't care. I don't want to drown. One of the lumberjacks held out his arms. You want out of this pool? Jimmy nodded, but he could not give himself to the lumberjack who might drop him in the water. Instead, he clamped his arms around Eddie's waist. I don't want to drown. No, I'll take care of it. Nothing will happen to you. Give me your hand and we'll get out of here. Eddie didn't sound mad anymore. Jimmy was too afraid. He squeezed Eddie tighter and closed his eyes. Jimmy. It was his mom's voice. He opened his eyes and turned his head to see his mother teetering on a log, mm -hmm. holding out a hand. Just as he started to take his, her hand, the log trembled. And Jimmy wrapped his arms around his mother's leg. Just hand him to me, ma'am, said one of the lumberjacks. No! Jimmy screamed, knowing he was acting like a baby, but he couldn't help it. Son, Jesus might have walked on water, but... Me and you are going to have to use this logger if we're going to get home in time to watch the end of the Bristol race. I'm going to take Mom's hand, and she's going to take your hand, and you're going to take Eddie's hand. Now his father was on the log, and Jimmy found himself obeying. 
just as they begin inching their way towards the planking, one of the antique tractors backfired and the startled lumberjacks released the log. As it began to roll, Jimmy and his brother and parents locked hands and automatically began keeping time with the log, slowly moving their feet forward in rhythm with each other. Jimmy was too busy concentrating on his feet to be scared. The whistles and clapping of the crowd sounded a long way off. Another backfire made Jimmy step a little too quickly. As he began leaning backwards, Eddie and Mom tried to grab him, and Dad tried to grab Mom, but it was too late. They all fell in a great spray of water, floundering under the weight of their drenched clothes until the lumberjacks hauled them out of the pool. I didn't drown. Fluffy will not starve. I'll never neglect her feeding again, not unless I'm in danger of missing the school bus. And only then if I know I'm coming straight home from school and not staying for soccer practice. Margaret stood before a crowd of strangers, soaked so thoroughly that she knew people could see the outline of her underwear. She was trying to decide whether this was worse than the time she fell out of the Corvette at Ed's high school reunion when he bowed and said, Next show in half an hour. The crowd laughed, the moment of potentially permanent humiliation passed, and the runners exited, squishing water from their sneakers. Nothing could diminish Ed's appetite. And Margaret found herself watching Ed and Jimmy loading up on elephant ears, unmindful of their sagging jeans. Having more or less saved his sons, Ed seemed to have forgotten his humiliation at the dime toss and was dutifully toting the punch bowl. What say we go on the road as the rowing riders? Margaret wished she could just as easily shrug off her disappointment. I'm going to be a scuba diver. Eddie, for once, said he wasn't hungry, and Margaret was just about to fill his forehead when she noticed a good-looking young man staring at her family. They must be a sight, Margaret knew, every one of them wringing wet and standing there as though they always ate their meals in a state of thorough saturation. The young man glanced at the box Ed carried, then turned his gaze back to Margaret. He flashed a handsome smile that was unmistakably directed at her, then walked on. The ten years that had been dumped on her by the young guesser fell away. She no longer felt the weight of her sodden clothes. Never mind that kid. Maybe he couldn't see the free-spirited girl inside her, but a good-looking stranger had. The smile was her proof. On the way back to the parking lot, the boys begged to stop at the fun house. But Ed continued tramping toward the Ferris entrance. Bolstered by the appraisal of the handsome stranger, Margaret paused to view herself in the trio of curved mirrors displayed as an enticement to the wonders inside. What she saw deflated her just-stroked vanity. She could see no sprite of a girl here. Instead, a Margaret wide as a warehouse stared back at her. She whirled to seek another version of herself, but the skinny Margaret frowned at her with the contorted face of a scarecrow. The third Margaret squatted like a toad, nose and lips flattened, eyes bulging. The images wavered and changed with her every movement, challenging and mocking her notion of herself. Margaret turned away and walked a little faster to catch up to her family, trying to flee the unsettling reflections. She was none of those distorted women, and yet somehow she was all of them. As she scurried, water flew from her in sparkling drops like chips falling from the faceting of a crystal. She sensed herself reforming, reshaping, 
When she got home, she would march straight into the bedroom and pick up every one of those animals. Well, maybe she'd keep one or two. But not because of some scrawny high school kid who probably couldn't tell time without a digital watch. She just didn't need a fake furred flock or even the smile of a handsome stranger to tell her who she was. Trailing behind the sugary smell of her husband and sons, Margaret felt the fullness of August, the sultry air pressing against her damp skin, the sun shining its brightest and hottest. The leaves of the few shade trees had deepened to their darkest green, still weeks away from turning to red and yellow. The thrilled screams and laughter of children, still free from the burdens of school, echoed across the fairgrounds. She felt herself opening to the ripeness of the season and to herself. And we thought these cows were pretty good as kids. Wait till you hear them do old ladies. <laughs> and in this uh, story, I'll always take care of you. Larry will once again return to the role of Wanda Talkett. I'll always take care of you. The old women are killing him. Joe knew that but felt trapped by their dependence upon him. Let their own families help out. His wife urged him. You've done enough. You've got your own AARP card. But what was he supposed to do when Ivy Ruskin called to complain about her washing machine hopping? Tell her to call her son two states away? He had just crawled into bed after pulling a 12-hour night shift at the bottling plant. But he crawled back out. Grabbing his wool jacket, he set off from his brick ranch across the road toward the old two-story white frame house, crunching through a light layer of frozen snow. Any of my husbands would have known what to do, but I'm afraid to touch it, Mrs. Ruskin said when he arrived. She led him to the basement where the washer thrashed as though possessed by demons. I'm afraid it'll knock me over, and you know I've already got the one bad hip. Joe stopped the washer, opened the lid, and removed a wad of towels. Oh, you've got too much in here. You ought to wash the sheets and the towel in separate loads. Joe looked around at the wooden shelves filled with glass jars of preserved fruits and vegetables. Many of them looked as if they'd been there for several years, their contents dark and murky. Mrs. Ruskin clutched her housecoat to her throat as though Joe might take advantage of her situation to survey her sagging ancient assets. <laughs> I hate to waste water. And you never, has it never been unbalanced before? Mrs. Ruskin told him solemnly, No, I was never unbalanced before. Like a magician pulling a never-ending scarf from his sleeve, Joe produced a twisted length of flannel material from the washer. And you always wash this with your towels? Oh, no, those are new sheets. My son sent those to me to keep me warm. Isn't he thoughtful? An apartment in an assisted living facility would really be thoughtful, but Joe said nothing. They climbed slowly back up the stairs. Did I ever show you Mr. Mann, she asked, pointing to a face jug sitting on the mantel in her living room. Hideous failed to do justice to the brown pot, jeering at him with features that were a grotesque exaggeration of the human face. Mrs. Ruskin had shown it to him at least a dozen times, each time telling him how her son had it appraised and how it was made by a German potter and that it was quite old, certainly 19th century, and worth, she always whispered here, thousands and how that was going to be her legacy to her boy. 
Usually, he let her tell the tale afresh, though he was skeptical of the monstrosity being worth anything. This morning, fatigue prompted him to interrupt. Yes, ma'am. You showed it to me the last time I was here. Oh, let me get you some breakfast. Big fellow like you needs to start the day right. Still clutching the house coat with one hand, she smoothed back a lock of hair darker than any shade nature could produce. I appreciate the offer, but I'm going back to bed. Oh, did I get you out of bed? When Joe got home, he discovered that Nadine already had gone back to sleep. He undressed and slipped into bed beside her, spooning himself against the warmth of her curves. He was just drifting to nether consciousness when the phone rang. Automatically, his hand reached out and jammed the receiver to his ear. I saw your lights, so I figured you were up, chirped Edna Simmons. I hate to bother you, but I got a drip in the basement, and I was worried the pipe might burst, especially with it being so cold and all. Miss Simmons' newly adopted dog confronted Joe at the door. After Beagle Bailey barked and sniffed, he wagged his tail and shuffled aside on his three legs to allow Joe entrance. Joe tried to persuade the stout Miss Simmons, who had arthritic knees, that he could check out the drip by himself, but she insisted on accompanying him into the stony cavern that smelled of mildew and neglect. Miss Simmons had worn herself out, looking after her father and mother until they died, and it appeared she didn't have much more care to give. A quarter-sized puddle quivered beneath a pipe. Hmm, that's part of your central vacuuming system. The old spinster squinted upward. I have to that lake. Joe pointed to a damp spot around the fitting. It's not coming from the pipe. It's leaking around the pipe. He went back upstairs, trailed by Miss Simmons. He located the hose outlet on the partition between the kitchen and the living room, but could discern no water source anywhere nearby. He threw his head back and gazed at the ceiling. No discoloration from a leaky roof. He returned to the basement but finding no further clues, dragged himself back up the stairs to stare at the outlet. It just didn't make any sense. Care for a cup of coffee? Sure, he said, before remembering that Miss Simmons made the most vile-tasting coffee in the county. He followed her into the kitchen where Beagle Bailey pranced, or at least as best he could on three legs, trying to draw attention to his food dish. Miss Simmons poured Joe a cup of coffee, then opened her pantry to dip a cup of kibble for the dog. Joe sipped from a chipped china cup, the jolt from Ms. Simmons' special blend of black death sizzling along his neural pathways. The steaming brew smelled like roasted potting soil. He tried not to scowl, concentrating instead on Beagle Bailey's attack on his food bowl. In his haste, the beast knocked it against his water dish, sloshing the contents. The caffeine in his system began tapping a message to his brain. Water on the floor. Bowl next to partition, outlet on other side of partition. He pointed to the bowl, glad for an excuse to set aside the cup. There's your problem. Where? That spilled water is linking downstairs. There's nothing wrong with your pipes. It's a water bowl? Miss Simmons asked as though surely the resolution could not be so simple. Yep, just set it far enough from the food bowl so your dog doesn't spill it. Ah. Oh. Do you think you should check the flooring to see if it's rotting? Joe already had picked up his jacket and was headed toward the door, but he stopped. He could simply say that all she had to do was move the ball and let the flooring dry. But he knew she'd never sleep again for fear her home was crumbling beneath her. And so he descended again to the basement and made a show of inspecting the wood. 
slogging back to his house in the thawing snow. Joe observed the Saturday sun already lighting the bare hills. Surely he could steal some sleep. He entered the house to find his wife in the kitchen, scowling, holding out the portable telephone. I saw you coming from Edna's, and I figured I'd better uh, call you up and see if you were still busy. Uh, there's something wrong with my wood furnace. It's burning too much wood. At this rate, I'll never make it through the winter. And so he found himself in yet another basement, the basement of Wanda Talcott, this time staring in awe at a stove that had burned so hotly that its red enamel was baked to a crispy umber. He strode over and bent to discover a gap in the door to the ash pan. Did you know this was open? Oh, that! She was dressed for the day in a dark blue cardigan and pants and the same kind of rubber-soled shoes she'd worn during her days as a nurse. Last time I emptied the pan, it wouldn't go all the way back in, so I just shut the door as far as I could. Uh, what's going on with Ivy and Edna? Well, they're fine, Joe said, surveying the toasted stove. You've been feeding as much air to your fire as if you left the damper wide open. Resigning himself, he shed his coat and got to work, wrecking the ashes from the recesses of the furnace. Back upstairs, he began with diplomacy. You know, that was a pretty dangerous situation. Oh, I know! I, did, I did, didn't know how long that wood would hold out. Joe was tired enough to be blocked. <sighs> no, you could have burned your house down. Just from burning extra wood? In his frustration to be understood, Joe spoke more loudly. Didn't you wonder what happened to your paint? You've had that stove burning hotter than Satan's barbecue pit. Well, you don't have to shout. I'm not deaf. Just promise you'll make sure that the door is shut tight. I promise. She didn't sound convincing to Joe. He tried another approach. What you need is a propane furnace. Then you wouldn't have to worry about that wood stove. Well, what if the electricity goes out? Don't you need electricity to run the furnace? Not if you install a stationary generator that runs off your propane tank. And where would I find the money for all that? Well, you might talk to the folks at the bank about something called a home equity conversion mortgage. I don't know exactly what that is, but I'm not about to start borrowing money in my age. Chester worked too hard to pay off this house in the first place. I just worry that this place is getting to be a burden for you. Joe didn't look at her as he zipped his coat. Well, it's lucky I have such good neighbors to help me out, Mrs. Talkett said, plucking lint from her cardigan. You know, I might not always be around. Mrs. Talkett stopped plucking. I see. It's not the house that's the burden, it's me. Mrs. Talkett was a sharp old woman capable of scaring small children, but now Joe could hear the tears in her voice. His tongue rushed to erase his words. No, no, I just meant me and Nadine have been thinking about moving somewhere warmer ourselves when we retire. He always contributed as much of his paycheck as he could to his pension investment funds so that he and Nadine could be comfortable. Mrs. Talkett sniffed. Well, my sinuses are giving me a fit. You're expecting your first grandchild, aren't you? Yes, in three months. But see what happens when that baby arrives. You won't be going anywhere. And if I had a grandbaby, you couldn't pry me away. Butterfly-shaped imprints in the snow led Joe back to his home. One day, he'd teach his grandson how to recognize rabbit tracks. 
and by the time the little fellow was big enough to tag along with his grandfather, Joe would be retired and ready to teach the boy the fine art of fly tying. Maybe they'd start with woolly buggers. He stepped inside the house to the inviting smell of frying eggs and bacon, a welcome change from his weekday routine of whole grain cereal and juice. You've already put in a full day's work, so I figure you've earned a field hand's breakfast. Nadine stood at the stove with a spatula. Joe hung his coat on a peg near the door and headed to the kitchen sink to wash up. He was just plugging in the toaster when Nadine intervened. Just hold your horses. She turned to the oven. No, no, it can't be. But Nadine did indeed produce a pan of beautifully brown biscuits. You are a queen among women. You got that right. I bet you're the most popular cook in the school cafeteria. Not on the days the county makes us serve broccoli with pizza. <laughs> Joe seated himself at the pine table they bought when they married. I don't reckon there's butter for those biscuits. Nadine opened the refrigerator and handed him a tub of heart-healthy margarine. Let's not get carried away. She joined him at the table. I thought after you got some sleep that we might go to the mall today. I've been thinking of picking up a few more things for the baby. Joe swallowed his bite of biscuit. Well, I can't. Uh, got to cut firewood. In the middle of winter? How are you going to saw frozen wood? That little frown that had looked so cute back when they were dating, and she was still a natural blonde, had turned into a wolverine grimace. Uh, we, we had a warm spell early in the week. He crammed another hunk of biscuit in his mouth, already foreseeing that this breakfast was not going to end happily. We've got plenty of wood. But Wanda Talca doesn't. She's been running that furnace of hers full blast. Joe waited for Nadine to start her harangue about how he never had time for his own family. But she just sat there, disappointment clouding her face. Finally, she said, I guess I can go myself. Stood up and left the room. She hadn't returned from the mall when Joe arrived home from his woodcutting expedition. He made two cold bacon biscuits and sat down with the mail at the kitchen table. The biscuits still sat untouched when she burst through the door, her cheeks bright from the cold, her good mood obviously restored by whatever lay within the bag she was carrying. I found the cutest! She stopped and set the bags on the floor. What's wrong? Is it the baby? Is it? He thrust the letter at her. She sat at the table, read it through, and said, It's all gone? Your retirement's all gone? How can that be? That's my own stupidity. But you had it invested through the company. Through the company, not with the company. You remember we talked about how to invest my pension money? Nadine turned the letter over as though some clue might be embedded there. I remember you coming home and talking about having to pick some funds. Remember that we talked about going with the aggressive growth? Sure, I remember. Who wouldn't want aggressive growth? Well, it looks like whoever was picking the stocks got too aggressive. Well, then the company will just have to make it up to you. No, that's why they call it self-directed. Then the money's really gone? He'd spent his best and strongest years working for the freedom in his old age to fish and play with his grandchildren. It's really gone. Nadine looked at the bags on the floor. Going right back to the store, don't you worry. She started to get up, but he laid a hand on hers. Nadine? She turned to him with the look the old women gave him, that trusting gaze that he could make it better. We might have to sell this place. But, but you're working, and I'm working. Well, we still won't have the note paid off by the time we retire. Social Security checks won't make a house payment. 
Where would we go? He hadn't seen that fear in her eyes since the time their little girl had broken her arm on the swing set. Even these many years later, he could still hear that cry of pain that sent both of them racing from the tomato patch. I don't know, Nadine. He squeezed her hand. I wish I did. He wanted more than anything to erase the worry from her face. Now, he would just have to work harder. So when he wasn't at the plant, Joe stocked grocery shelves. No, Joe has to have his supper, and then he's doing his new job. He heard Nadine saying one evening when he came in. Maybe your son can come in and take care of it. She clicked off the portable phone. I swear, I think those old women have some kind of a radar system attached to your truck. What does Mrs. Ruskin need? Never mind what she needs, Nadine said, setting before him a bowl of vegetable soup. What about you? You can't keep this up, hardly sleeping. The phone rang again. Hello? No, he can't. He has to go to work. Which one was that? Edna. What does she need? It'll wait. Eat your supper. She watched him eat, then repeated with that wolverine frown. You can't keep this up. I'd rather live in a tent than see you work yourself to death. Joe ate quietly, trying to figure out when he could stop by and see about Edna Simmons' problem. Whatever it was, he knew she was counting on him to take care of it. He'd have to find time for Ivy Ruskin, too. That son of hers wasn't dependable. Maybe he'd sneak over there when he finished his next afternoon shift at the plant. He didn't have to sneak. When he got home, there was no Nadine, just a note saying she was still at school and that he'd find supper in the refrigerator. Immediately, he called the school. When she finally came to the phone, he said, What's wrong? Well, nothing's wrong. I left you a note. Well, why are you still there? Well, I'm working. The background noises he heard sounded more like floor buffers than kitchen utensils. I got an extra job helping the janitors. I can work just as hard as you can. And she hung up on him. But week by week, the strain began to show. Nadine's rheumatism flared. Joe's back constantly ached. The phone had stopped ringing because the old ladies couldn't find anyone home. But any quiet time Joe and Nadine had was dedicated to rubbing each other with medicated ointment. You in the mood? Joe asked Nadine one Sunday afternoon as they sat in their respective recliners in the living room. Sure. Who's going to get the tube, you or me? The doorbell chimed. I wonder who that is. Then she shot to her feet. Oh, maybe the baby's coming. Maybe they're on the way to the hospital. Joe was too sore to stir. I doubt whether they'd make campaign stops along the way. It wasn't their daughter and her husband. Before them stood the old ladies, all three of them, still dressed in their Sunday church clothes. Joe saw Nadine's face and knew she was thinking of the unwashed dishes in the sink. Wanda Talcott didn't wait to be invited in. She stepped right into the living room and seated herself after straightening the lopsided afghan covering the sofa. Ivy Ruskin and Edna Simmons followed, lining themselves up beside her. Coffee? Nadine offered in a faint voice, gathering fishing and cooking magazines from the coffee table. Well, that would be nice, Mrs. Ruskin said. Cream and sugar if you have it. Black! Me too. I like a strong cup of coffee. While Nadine was in the kitchen, Joe began apologizing. I'm sorry I haven't had a chance to see about you all. Well, you're a busy man, murmured Mrs. Ruskin. We understand. I don't see why they don't make police officers check on senior citizens. Seems like every time I drive by the Dairy Queen, that Paul Goshen is sitting there running gas that I'm paying for. Nadine appeared with an old wooden tray. She served the women coffee from white porcelain cups that had belonged to her mother and that had spent the past several years secure in the cupboard. 
Mrs. Talcott took one drink from her cup, set it down, and said, Have you tried Folgers? I'm partial to dark peat. I like those flavored coffees, Mrs. Ruskin added. Mrs. Talcott opened her purse, withdrew an envelope, and handed it to Joe. This is for you two, from all of us. With Nadine standing behind him, peering over his shoulder, Joe opened the envelope to find a bank deposit slip for his and Nadine's account. The deposit was a hefty one, big enough to cover mortgage payments. Joe stared at the women. You put money in our bank account? Yes, said Mrs. Ruskin with a big smile. Why? We heard about your problem. Joe felt Nadine's fingers gripping his shoulder. For crying out loud, Edna heard about it from one of the fellows who works at the funeral home, and he heard about it from his wife who works with your daughter, and besides, you're not the only one at the plant that's got one of these letters. Joe shook his head in puzzlement. But you don't have this kind of money. Home equity conversion mortgage. But that means there won't be any money left when your house... Joe didn't know how to tiptoe around. Your house is sold after you die. And uh, I don't have children. My relatives aren't doing, aren't doing well enough. Wanda picked up her coffee cup and took another sip. Can I ask you whether you ever tried Folgers? But you, you have a son, Nadine said to Mrs. Ruskin. I sold Mr. Man. But that's your son's legacy. Joe had heard it say it enough times. Mrs. Ruskin shrugged. He'll have the house. Joe tried to thrust the check back at Mrs. Talcott. Oh, we can't take this. Well, you have to. It's already in your account. But there's no telling when we could pay you back. Nadine said, but from the easing of her fingers, Joe could tell she was already contemplating a future without janitorial labor. We're not expecting you to pay us back. Of course. We pay you back, said Joe, feeling himself slide from prideful resistance to visions of freedom from lugging cases of bottled water and pallets of canned baby peas. Well, if you try to pay me, I'm just going to demand an invoice every time you set foot in my house. Mrs. Talcott took another sip of coffee. This is an instant, is it? Joe pressed, tested one more time. You just can't give us your money. Regard it as a favor for a favor. As a matter of fact, there is one you can do for me. Anything. Well, I was reading that dogs should have their anal glands expressed. But I think I'll need some help with Beagle Bagley. Joe had no idea what expressing anal glands involved and he was pretty sure he didn't want to participate, but it was too late. He was trapped. He had a feeling he'd been fated for this moment even before his birth. He felt Nadine's fingers massaging his shoulder in sympathy. I'll see what I can do. Oh, and the next time you have a chance to stop by, said Mrs. Ruskin, I was wondering if you could check out that smell under the house. Joe was pretty sure nothing good could come of scrabbling around in the dirt of the crawl space. The sticky spider webs would be nothing compared to the touch or smell of groundhog, possum, or whatever lay rotting underneath there. Uh, I'll see to it. Mrs. Talcott stood. Well, I've got a broccoli casserole and he'd take it out of the oven. The other women got up and followed her to the door. Just as she stepped outside, Mrs. Talcott turned to Joe. When you have a moment, I've got a leak in my roof. 
That meant a trip to Mrs. Talkett's attic, which was piled with loose insulation, the only foothold the old ceiling joist requiring the balance of a gymnast. I'll check it out, Joe said, closing the door. Nadine was holding the envelope. Is this our deliverance or a visitation? Seems pretty miraculous to me. Well, I have a feeling you're going to pay a lot of sweat equity for this gift. You know, I was going to have to find the time to help them anyway. I know. Just don't forget about this old lady. After all, I'm about to become a grandmother. Oh, don't worry. Worry, I'll always take care of you. He said, then brushed his lips against her ear. I'm going to get the ointment right now. And thank you so much to Elizabeth Spangler and Larry Davis. Aren't they were just marvelous. In fact, I believe he channels Wanda Talkett. I'm not sure. <laughs> so thank you, folks, again. Keep on reading. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker, whose albums can be found at cdbaby.com. Our remote recording equipment was provided courtesy of the Wolf Creek Mountain Research Project. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was assembled atop a hill in Mercer County.